The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew, a reading from Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and wherever you and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, Jesus told Peter that when he said... Um, when he recognized Jesus, that that was, uh, that wasn't his cleverness. That was your gift. And, uh, that's really good news because, um, we find it hard to believe we, it's impossible. It, we can't believe in the way that, that we need to, we can't trust Jesus in the way that we need to, um, left to our own devices. We're, we're just stuck and worse. But you are the Father. You are our Father who loves to show mercy. And so we come now. We ask that you would teach us, uh, help us to understand, help us to grasp, keep me from saying stupid things, um, keep our hearts and minds set upon you and your word and your truth. Make yourself clear to us. Um, but will you, and in doing all of that, will you pour out your mercy so that we would see Jesus in the, in the glory and the compelling beauty that he is? And all of us are coming at different spots. All of us have different distractions. All of us have different struggles. All of us have different uh, frustrations and anger and pain. And, 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 and we're all in different places. And, and, but you know exactly where each of us is. You know where each of us is better than we know where we are. So, Lord, um, will, you, uh, will you target the parts of our hearts that need to be overcome by your mercy and your grace? And then just, just go after us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, everybody. Um, will you please turn back to uh, page nine? Actually, I don't think you need to turn back. It's just right there. We're going to be looking at that gospel reading um, that Deb's read for us. And um, this is a really important story. Part of the reason it's important is that this is a crucial moment where Jesus begins to roll out his vision for church, his plan for church. Um, and Jesus makes a big promise. He, he promises to build a church that all the powers of hell and the devil and death and evil, that all those things cannot overcome. So just look, look at it. Verse 18, P, uh, Jesus is talking to Peter, and Jesus says this. He says, you are Peter. Peter's name when he was born was Simon, but Jesus changes it. He says, you are Peter. Peter means rock. And on this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now pause there. That is a big audacious promise. Jesus is promising to build a robust church uh, that will not be overcome by evil. And that brings up a question for me because I look at this and I want to know, Jesus, okay, help me know what sort of church is it that you're building? What sort of church is it that you want to build? And here's part of the reason I ask that question. There's obvious reasons. I lead a church. We're all part of the church. So it, it's a good question to ask. But, but here's another part, another reason why I ask that question. Um, I find it reasonably straightforward to find Jesus really compelling. Like, it's not hard to sit down and read Jesus and, and find yourself, wow, Jesus is challenging. Jesus is compelling. Jesus is remarkable in his teaching, in the depth of thought, in, in, in the way he engaged his world at that time. In fact, a lot of people who aren't even Christians nevertheless find Jesus really, really compelling. Lots of people do, right? It's easy. It's kind of easy to find Jesus compelling. However, as compelling as Jesus is, the church, am I right? The church is a harder sell, isn't it? I mean, if you were to zoom in on any given congregation, and, you know, I'm tempted to say, not you, Emmanuel. You got, I mean, come on. But, but you know, if you zoom in on any given congregation, if you get into the nitty gritty enough, there's going to be stuff that's not great, right? And some of us know that personally and 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 uh painfully and and i know that i'm a pastor so i get to see how the sausage is made right and so sometimes it's not great now that drives me back to the reading because despite all the reasons that some of us might find to be cynical about church it's remarkable to me how jesus is not cynical he's not cynical about the church despite the fact that in the one way the church of his age, the, uh, the religious leaders of his age, end up killing him and persecute him the entirety of his ministry. Nevertheless, Jesus is not cynical. And so I want to know, Jesus, what does it look like when you build a church? Because part of my expectation is that any church that Jesus designs and builds is going to share in some of the things that we find so compelling about Jesus. So I want to know, Jesus, what kind of church are you going to build? And I want to show you, show you three characteristics of a church that Jesus builds from this passage. The first is this. The church that Jesus builds is animated by the revelation of Christ himself. What in the world does that mean? Well, go to the story. So, um, once again, uh, Jesus and his disciples are getting out of town. Um, they go up uh, north of historic Israel-Palestine. And uh, they're in an area that's in a non-Jewish area. And Jesus sits down with his disciples and they're having a conversation. And it almost sounds like, not quite, but it almost sounds like Jesus checks on his polling numbers. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey, the 12 guys closest to me, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And the disciples' responses are, are kind of interesting because they kind of sound like pundits. They, they come back and they say, well, Jesus, man, your numbers are great. Your numbers are great. Everyone strongly agrees that you are on par with some of the greatest heroes of Israel's history. People like John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah. You're doing great, Jesus. 
However, Jesus clearly doesn't care much about his popularity. I mean, Jesus knew that actually John the Baptist and Jeremiah, both of them were killed by <laughs> the authorities of their day. And Elijah spent his whole life being persecuted by them. So Jesus knows that popularity is not that great. So he brushes that aside and he looks straight at the 12 again and he just drills home a new question. He says, yes, but who do you say that I am? And then comes one of the great turning points in the history of the Bible and in world history, because Peter jumps up and he says, verse 16, take a look at it. He says, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, up until this point, nobody has said this out loud, even Jesus. Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah by trying to persuade people verbally and telling everybody how great he was as the Messiah. He, he acted like the Messiah. Now, we're going to look at this confession of Peter in just a minute. But first, look at Jesus's response. Look at verse 17. Look how Jesus interprets Peter's confession. Jesus says this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Peter's birth name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now slow down and watch. Jesus does not say what I might expect him to say. He does not say, wow, Peter, you are so clever. You're an early adopter. You're out there in front of everybody. You figured it out. Well done. Instead, Jesus says almost the opposite. He says, wow, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. You couldn't have. You receive this insight as a gift from my father. You are blessed, maybe above anybody else at this moment. Jesus says, my father revealed or unveiled a secret and a mystery that you could have never figured out on your own. God the Father, Jesus says to Peter, has shown you who I really am. Now, pause. The church that Jesus built is, builds is always animated by the Father showing people who Jesus is in a way that they couldn't have figured out on their own. Let me try to explain this a little bit more. And to do that, I want you to imagine Peter growing up week by week in synagogue. Now, Peter, week after week, his whole life at synagogue, he hears the Hebrew scriptures read, and he reads it for himself. The Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. And one of the odd things about the Old Testament is that it tells a very strange story. In one way, it's a long national history of ancient Israel, but it's a very strange national history of ancient Israel, because week after week, Peter grows up hearing the story of his nation. But the theme that comes up week by week is not, wow, Israel is a remarkable nation. They always figured it out. Man, we can do anything if we try hard enough. That's not the message that Peter heard when he heard the story of his nation. It's more like the opposite. Week by week, Peter heard, wow, despite all of God's kindness to us, we are a people whose history is riddled with failure and injustice and sin. It's odd to front foot those things in a national history, and yet that's what the Bible's story does. Now, at first that sounds pessimistic, right? Who wants a pessimistic story? But it ends up it's not pessimistic, and here's why. 
Week by week, as Peter hears this story, he also hears a message of hope. The story is just radiating with hope, but the hope is not Israel has what it takes to succeed, but rather Israel's only hope is in a God who intervenes. The story of the Bible is a long story of desperate human need and a God who intervenes. Now, Peter knew all this from synagogue, but what he did not know and what he could never have guessed is that the God who intervenes in Israel's story was going to intervene in person. And then Peter met Jesus. And when Peter heard uh, Jesus teach, almost inevitably, he, he said, wow, Jesus is the greatest rabbi I've ever heard. And then Jesus saw Peter, or Peter saw Jesus heal. And maybe when he saw Jesus heal, he saw, he thought, wow, he's another prophet. He's greater than a rabbi. He's another prophet like Elijah. But then everything got crazy because Jesus not only healed, he began to do miracles that only God himself can do. He walked on the water and he controlled the seas and only God does that in the Old Testament. And he fed Israel in the desert with bread miraculous bread and only God does that in the Old Testament and Jesus went around forgiving people their sins based upon his own authority and only God does that in the Old Testament so Jesus walked around acting as God and yet despite all the evidence Peter couldn't make the next step and this is important Emmanuel because it's not so much Catch this, please. It's not so much that we discover Jesus or figure him out. It's more, far more that God unveils Jesus to us. And that was the miracle that happened on this day. And it's the miracle that happens at the heart of a church that Jesus builds. God intervened in Peter's mind and in his heart. And God made Peter recognize Jesus for all, all that he is. Not in a way that undermined rationality, but in a way that organized all that Peter had seen and all the evidence that was before Peter, but then made it crystal clear and persuaded him. God broke in so that a human being called Peter could look at a human being called Jesus and recognize that he was also looking at God in person. It was a precious moment when God unveils himself to humanity. And friends, this is part of the beating heart of a church that Jesus builds. And here's part of why. You know, a good church hopefully does many, many good things, right? A good church is going to support each other in the midst of difficulty. A good church is going to advocate for justice. A good church is going to uh, serve the city that it lives in. A good church is going to give people hope beyond death. A good church is going to do many good things. But underneath all of those things, there's something deeper. And there's something that animates everything else. God wants to introduce us to Jesus Christ. God the Father wants to unveil Jesus before us so that the church, before it's anything else, becomes a place where God and humanity meet together, really. And that's why the first miracle that we seek at Emmanuel Church is that we would see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, that is a miracle. So when Jesus builds his church, it's always animated by God 
removing the veil so that we can see the face of Jesus Christ and see that he is the son of the living God. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. When Jesus builds a church, God always tethers us to Jesus in allegiance. That sounds weird. Go back to Peter. Verse 16. What Peter says about Jesus, he says, you are the Christ. That means a Messiah, anointed king of Israel. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God personally intervening in this world. Now, when Peter says that, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he's not saying that as a pundit. He's saying that as an adherent. What do I mean? A pundit, we hear enough of them, don't we? They report on something, they comment on someone. But there's no personal commitment, right? That's what the disciples were doing earlier when they were, so to speak, reporting on Jesus's polling numbers. They're detached, but not Peter. When Peter says, you are the son of the living God, he is quivering with allegiance. Just, just look at his words. Do, do you see what he says? You are the son of the living God. Now that's an expression that means the real God as opposed to phony gods. And when Peter said that, he was literally surrounded by phony gods. The text says that they were in a region called Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi was a place that was dedicated uh, both to Roman imperial power and also to pagan religion. It was named after Caesar. It had been renamed after Caesar. Previously, it had a different name. And so it was dedicated to Rome. On the other hand, though, it was a town that hosted a shrine to the pagan god Pan. So it was a monument to political power. It was a monument to paganism. And interestingly, this is where Jesus decides to have this conversation. And this is where Peter makes his confession. When, G when Peter gives his allegiance to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as the Son of God, he's implying in that moment that no one else holds the allegiance or deserves the allegiance like Jesus does. So for instance, in this context, Rome. Peter's saying, Rome does not hold my allegiance, at least not deeply. And paganism does not hold my allegiance despite its cultural dominance and in that moment and at that area. And this is important because remember that later on in Peter's life, at the end of it, Peter gets executed by the Romans precisely because of the depth of his allegiance to Jesus. Because when, G when Peter says elsewhere, Jesus Christ is Lord, all the Romans understood that that means Caesar is not Lord. Peter was giving his deep allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's implied in the confession, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And let me point out why this is so important for a church that Jesus is building. One of the marks that Emmanuel and any other church is going to be a healthy one is that we will be very protective of our unique allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is not one among many in the heart of the church that Jesus is building. Jesus stands unique and alone. And he tolerates no competitors for the deepest allegiance of our hearts. Because our thinking will be like this. Jesus is the son of the living God. 
He is the real one. He is God's real personal intervention in this world. And therefore, nothing else in my life, nothing else in our church can share the deepest allegiance of our hearts, not with Jesus. My politics will not bear the deepest allegiance of my heart. My nation will not hold the deepest allegiance of my heart. My family will not hold the deepest allegiance of my heart. My ambitions for the future will not hold the deepest allegiance of my heart. My deepest desires, my hopes for the future, my, my, my identity and how I think of myself, nothing like that holds the deepest allegiance of my heart because that's where Jesus is. The epicenter of a church is in its unique allegiance to Jesus Christ based upon what Jesus says about himself in the Bible and how the God the Father has revealed his beauty to us and compelled us and captivated our souls. And therefore, let me ask you this, Emmanuel. What are the main competitors for the deep allegiance of your heart? How we answer that question is going to determine a great deal about us. Okay, first, the church that Jesus is building is going to be marked by God the Father unveiling the beauty of Christ to us. Number two, the church that Jesus builds is going to have a deep allegiance to Jesus. And then thirdly, the church that Jesus builds is going to, be, is going to live out his mission. Look at verse 19. So Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says this. He renames him Peter, which means rock. He says... On this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And he says, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what is going on? What's the binding and the loosing and the keys and those sorts of things? Well, this is where Jesus begins to commission Peter as a leader in the church. So Peter is always a leader among the apostles. You can see that especially later on after Jesus rises from the dead. And if you watch Peter's ministry later on, it can become clear what Jesus means here. After Jesus rose from the dead, Peter spent the rest of his life preaching Jesus, telling people about Jesus, describing the beauty of Jesus, or I could say it differently. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter spent the rest of his life as an agent through whom God the Father unveiled Jesus for other people so that they could come and surrender their deepest allegiance to Jesus Christ as well. Jesus gave Peter the power of the keys. Jesus gave Peter a unique leadership role with a purpose so that Peter could help other people experience the same transformation that Peter himself had experienced here. And, and even more, it's not just that Peter was supposed to help individuals come to an, into a relationship with Jesus, but Peter's job was to help build whole communities. We call them churches that were shot through and animated with a captivated love for Jesus, that that's the center of the culture. And Peter did that later on by both binding and loosing. What in the world does that mean? Well, again, read the book of Acts and you'll find Peter sometimes binding. What does that mean? For instance, let, let me give you an example. You find Peter in the book of Acts in a number of different places, looking at, for instance, the religious leaders of his day and saying, 
religious leaders of my day, you think that you're loyal to God. However, I want to tell you that you're not as loyal as you think you are. The trajectory of your life is towards injustice and sin. But you need to see that Jesus is the real king, the true authority. Therefore, you must surrender your allegiance to him. And religious leaders, says Peter, until you do, you will face Jesus as your adversary because you're allying yourself to what Jesus opposes. Peter would rebuke sin, both within the community of God, the people of Israel, and outside it those who weren't part of Israel. He would rebuke them and point out their sin, and that's binding. It's telling people when they are moving away from Jesus, it's telling, warning people about the consequences and the danger of sin. It's saying, be careful, stop going that way, turn around. That trajectory leads to eternal death, binding. But then there's loosing. And loosing is when Peter looks at people who knew that they needed the intervention of God. They had felt the binding weight of sin. They knew that they were sinners. They knew they were guilty of injustice. They knew that they were naturally God's adversaries, and therefore they were, re they were ready to surrender to Jesus Christ fully. And Peter had the privilege of looking at them and saying, on the basis of Christ's authority, you are loosed from your sin. You are free, and you belong to Jesus Christ. So see his beauty and walk with him and surrender. Loosing. He had a great job. And in one way, he had a unique role in the church because he was unique. He was a unique leader among the apostles, and he had a unique role in uh, writing part of the Bible. But there's another way in which all churches that Jesus build uh, has a job and has a role to bind and to loose. And and if you've come along to Emmanuel, you see this every single week. At the beginning of our service, there was a confession of sin where we recognize the binding and binding power of sin. And we renounce the sin that binds us so closely. But then after the confession, uh, the leader of the church, in this case me, I get to stand up, so to speak, and proclaim the Lord's liberty, that based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, anyone who is penitent and has turned from sin and surrendered to Christ in faith, you are free, loosing. And as a church, the closer we get to Jesus, the clearer we are about who he is, the stronger our allegiance to Jesus because of what he has done for us, the more we will be able to speak authoritatively on his behalf. We'll be able to say in our own day on the basis of the scriptures that Jesus is hostile to injustice and sin and, call, and Jesus calls every one of us to a full surrender. And until that happens, we are his adversary because we're allied with what he opposes. We are called to bind. But on the other hand, we get the wonderful uh, privilege of loosing, proclaiming Jesus's freedom. We get to uh, loose in the name of Jesus, the chains that bind our community. We get to say to people who are ready to surrender that you and I both need the intervention of God and that God has intervened personally in Jesus Christ and that Jesus is the King and therefore all is prepared. So surrender to him. He shares his freedom with you and we can say that with confidence and the people can hear that with confidence and lives can be transformed. And that's good news. We've got a great job. Binding and loosing. 
And can you feel the privilege of that? Jesus calls us to be a people who see him, not because we figured it out, but because God the Father is working in a miracle. And because we see his beauty, it, the, uh, the Holy Spirit tethers us to Jesus in allegiance. And then we get to hold up the truth of the sinfulness of sin and the glorious freedom that Jesus offers. But go back to Peter for a second, because it ends up that this moment, important as it was, was not the most deci decisive transforming moment for Peter. In fact, over the next months, maybe year, Jesus, in a sense, had to bind Peter in his sin. Here's what I mean. Over the next few years, and you can see this actually about three verses later, Peter or Jesus shows Peter that just like Israel, Peter needs drastic intervention. Jesus shows Peter that just like the church today, Peter needs drastic intervention. Peter keeps on failing Jesus. Actually, Jesus calls him Satan in about four or five verses after the end of our reading. We'll see this next week. And it all comes to a head when Jesus gets arrested, because when Jesus gets arrested, Peter bolts, he gets scared, he cracks, and he verbally denies that Jesus is the Son of God, he detaches his allegiance from Jesus, he forfeits all his rights of leadership, he undoes everything in this passage. And in that moment, there's a moment where Jesus locks eyes with Peter, right when Peter has repudiated him and denied him. And in that moment, Peter, Peter's heart breaks and he goes out and weeps and he feels just how bound he is by his own sin. Jesus must do that in us too. Emmanuel, we will never be the church that Jesus wants us to be until we feel the full depth and weight of our sin. It's a big deal. But Jesus didn't leave Peter bound. Peter needed God's intervention. But what Peter didn't know and could never have imagined is just how costly God's intervention in his life would be. Because Jesus had to die on the cross. And when Jesus was dying upon the cross, he was experiencing infinite binding by sin. Sin bound him, choked him until he died under its penalty. But he didn't stay dead. The gates of hell could not stand against Jesus. He rose again three days later with the power to break the chains of sin and to loose those who are captivated by sin. And Jesus loosed Peter and forgave him and restored him. And when Peter experienced that, that was the real transformation. That was the turning point. That's when Peter saw Jesus' full beauty. He started to see it when he saw that Jesus was the Messiah and the son of the living God, but now he really saw it when he saw Jesus break the chains that bound him. That's when the father unveiled all that Jesus was to him. And that's the moment also when Peter's full allegiance really finally was given to Christ. It was only when Peter felt himself bound by sin and knew himself freed by Christ that he was ready to proclaim that freedom to others. And Emmanuel, that's the same for us. We will be the church that Jesus wants precisely to the extent that we are animated by the mercy of Christ's cross. It is the cross that shows us how desperately we need God's intervention. 
And it is at the cross that we will see how costly that intervention was. And it is at the cross that we will see the full beauty of Jesus perfectly showing us who God is. It is at the cross that we will find the Holy Spirit attaching our hearts to Jesus Christ in trust and in love and in loyalty and in allegiance that trumps everything else. It is at the cross that we will find the power and the commission to offer Jesus's intervention to a world in desperate need of it. And it is at that place, at the cross, in that place where our weakness is front-footed, where all the where, where, where we front foot how the sausage is made and all the difficulty and all the pain and all the reasons why we can be cynical about ourselves and about the church is when we put all that out before the cross of Christ, not hiding it, but confessing it, that we will find freedom and that we will be a church that the gates of hell cannot overcome. Let's ask Jesus to build the church. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.